Coming to you live from Redemption Church in Olathe, Kansas, right next to Kansas City in Kansas and kind of Missouri, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And this week it's a live episode. The questions are unscreened, the answers unrehearsed. I'm here as part of my book tour to support my new Finding God in the Waves, and we've got some more tour stops coming up. So on November 11th, I'll be in Costa Mesa, November 12th, Glendale, November 13th, Los Angeles and Mission Hill, November 20th in Portland, November 21st in Seattle, Tacoma, November 26th, going to the big city of Thomasville, Georgia, November 30th, Boston, November 21st, Grand Haven, Michigan. You can find out more about tour stops and when and where you can see me, as well as getting tickets by going to findinggonetheways.com slash tour. But for now, we've got a podcast to do, so let's get it started. Uh, tell me about, if you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, how that helps your brain and what goes on in your brain if you follow him consistently. What are the things that, that happen? And what's your name? Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. Follower of Jesus, what it does to your brain. Uh, it depends on how you view Jesus. It's a big part of what neurological activity we would see in association with your faith practice. Hopefully, if you believe in Jesus, the primary thing you believe about God is that God is loving. Um, but you might think that God is primarily angry. Why would you think that? Some uh, strong emphasis on substitutionary atonement theology can lead you to focus primarily on God's anger as a wrath that needed to be sated as opposed to God's love being expressed through the life of Jesus Christ. And those two views of God do very different things to your brain. Uh, if you believe in a God who's primarily angry, your amygdala, which is the part of the brain responsible for fear and anger, becomes more active. Your stress level increases. You become fearful of people you view as outside of your social group or tribe. Uh, you uh, find it harder to forgive yourself and other people. Uh, and you get really great impulse control. Because if you think God might smite you, <laughs> then... It actually does help in the short term with behavioral control. This is the reason people, for example, in recovery programs can be really drawn to fundamentalist ideas about God with a strong anger reaction because they need God to maybe be angry to modify their behavior. Not a really exciting view of God. The loving God, however, cr creates a dramatically different uh, set of neurological activity. Number one, you get thicker, richer gray matter in your prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain responsible for focus and concentration. You get thicker, richer gray matter in your anterior cingulate cortex, which is the part of the brain responsible for compassion and empathy. Your blood pressure goes down. Your stress level goes down. You become more forgiving. You become less likely to become angry because the increased 
neurological capacity in your prefrontal cortex and anterior cingulate cortex starves energy from your amygdala. So believing in Jesus makes you less likely, neurologically speaking, to flip people off in traffic. Um, let's see. Uh, over time, if you believe in Jesus for a very long time, deeply, your thalamus, which is the brain's relay center, kind of the grand central station or Atlanta airport of your neurological composition, will have a characteristic uh, asymmetry to its activity. When that happens, some neuroscientists believe that an idea has become essential in your identity formation. And if that idea is that God is loving, you see the world as fundamentally safe. When you see the world as fundamentally safe, you can take risks on other people and relationships that don't make logical sense because you believe God will work it out. So whether that belief has rational, empirical justification or not, the effect is people who live lives of radical love. Now, what's interesting to me about the repetition of faith practice and brain science is we find that when you first begin to learn new ideas or new concepts, including about God, it happens in your neocortex, which is the outermost layer of the brain, the most recent to appear in evolutionary history. And your neurons there are slow and they take a lot of energy. But as you reflect on ideas over and over and over, they get wired deeper and deeper into the brain. And in that process, quite literally, word becomes flesh. And when that word is God is love, it transforms who you are, not only in your behavior, but in the very nature of your brain. My name's Michaela, and I'm an exvangelical. So um, I love that term. I read a book. Part of my becoming an exvangelical was reading a book called How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. Yeah. Are you familiar? Kind of my favorite book ever. Okay, yeah. Other than mine. So, uh, <laughs> um, so my question is, uh, you, you talked very well about all of the changes in the brain when someone follows Jesus. So how does that compare to people who follow devoutly other religions? Is there a difference in the brain structure when they believe in Jesus specifically versus um, loving or angry gods from other traditions? Uh, really, really amazing question, first of all. There are differences in the brain activity associated with religious practice based on faith. Uh, for example, the Christian faith comes from a very Western context, and so our prayer and meditation activity tends to heavily involve our temporal lobes, especially our left temporal lobe, which is the seat of language, whereas if you uh, brain scan, for example, a Buddhist monk, you'll find that their meditation is more involved in the visual cortex of the brain because they don't use word as much to contemplate God. They use image. The output of that process, however, is the same. A Buddhist or a Muslim or a person of any faith who believes God is loving gets the same neurological benefits as Christians. When I say this, in some rooms, you see a in the audience because people thought I just wrote them like a blank science check for Jesus that they could tell their friends, Jesus transforms your brain, science reveals the one true God, sorry, you're wrong. 
and science doesn't really fit that bucket. So when I, when I talk about the neurological benefits of faith and religion and God, I'm not talking specifically about Christianity. So what is my scientific case for why I'm a Christian and not just a spiritualist or a Buddhist? I don't have one. I don't have any scientific reason why Jesus is more compelling than any other faith. None at all. What I have is in my life and in my experience, it is through the name of Jesus and the practice of my faith centered around his life, teachings, and identity as I understand it, that opens me up to God or opens God up to me or both, I don't know, frankly, it's quite mysterious. Because if, if there's one thing that science really validates for me in the way I approach faith, it's the value of mysticism. When you scan someone's brain who really believes in God and you ask them to think about God, you remember those temporal lobes I just said are active when we pray? They're not active when we picture God. Our understanding of God is not primarily linguistic in origin. Neurologically speaking, your understanding of God much more closely resembles a feeling or an experience, which is also true when you love someone. So have you ever been in a significant relationship and a third party says, why do you love this person? And you go, um, and then the person you're with says, what do you mean, um? <laughs> and accidentally, this third party has created this state of stress. It's because the understanding you have of that person is so deep that it transcends your understanding of language. And it takes time for your brain to turn that neurological image into language, which is why you go, uh, which is the same reason people who deeply and genuinely believe in God, if someone says, well, what is God anyway? What do they say? Uh, because they're trying to take a non-linguistic brain state and express it through language. A funny thing happens when you try to describe non-linguistic brain states. You change them in the process of trying to describe them. So Andrew Newberg, among other neuroscientists, says that mysticism is the most neurologically accurate form of faith. People who sit with the experience of the divine but don't try to force it into linguistic containers. And the fact is, in my life, all of my experiences and all my knowledge of Christ come to me through mysticism. It's through mysticism I've become so fascinated with Trinitarian theology, the idea of a, of a distant, mysterious creator God who also is embodied in the form of a, a Christ, a reconciling force that always invites all of creation back into relationship with God, and a spirit that dwells within creation, not distant and unknowable, but within everyone who loves God. And that those beings only exist in relationship to each other, and we only exist in relationship to that Godhead, is an incredibly unscientific idea. 
It's just, if I tried to get it published in a paper, I'd have a real bad time. But when I orient my life and my faith around it, that messy hack works. So again, no like scientific compelling reason, Jesus. The only thing I can talk to people about Jesus is my need for Jesus, which I don't know who else it applies to. Somehow knowing it applies to me is enough. This is way out of my comfort zone for asking questions. Me too. But I'm a number nine on the Enneagram. <laughs> my name is Kent. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Imato's um, water crystal um, experiments, um, but he's done these experiments with these water crystals, and when uh, he, he, he says a word, and it's like, okay, uh, he says something like Holocaust or Hitler or something negative, um, that crystal just deforms and it's nasty. And then when he says something like holy or Jesus, those crystals form into a perfect, beautiful crystal. Um, my question is, is that, is that scientifically based? Is that um, a, a mysticism? Um, is that, um, and knowing all of this, um, another part of my question would be, you know, I believe in Jesus and I, and I have all, the, all of these thoughts and I always end up going towards negative things and um, I always want to turn those things around and it's hard to do sometimes and you know the thing about Imato's um, crystal is we're made up of water and when people say negative things to you and, and things like that it affects you tremendously um, but when you have positive things coming your way um, you know, it, it builds you up and makes you comfortable and, and, and encourages you. So if you can speak on that a little bit, I'd appreciate it. I would be happy to. Great question. Thank you. We are mostly water. That's definitely scientifically verifiable. Um, the backbone of science is all knowledge, scientific knowledge, is correlated with evidence to support it. So in scientific parlance, you put confidence in a belief which is directly proportional to the evidence you have to support that belief. That's how science works. How do we make sure we have evidence? Um, our experiment and our observation goes through a very rigorous process where we describe not only our observations, but how we made them so other people can replicate the finding which increases the evidence. Dirty secret, replication studies don't happen very often because science doesn't exist in a vacuum. Scientists need funding. You get funding publishing uh, positive results, not negative results, by the way. So there's incredible pressure on scientists to only go on to research they think they'll get a positive result for so they can publish it and keep getting funding so they can eat and hire people and they can eat. It's literally a can you eat pressure in the sciences. So, so peer, replication studies don't get funded very often. Uh, but it's important that you at least publish your methodology in a way that other people could test it if they wanted to 
and we consider a scientific finding a positive result at a certain threshold of statistical significance, which also must be published. So the, the, the water crystal experiment doesn't meet that level of rigor, and when people have tried to replicate it, they haven't consistently duplicated those findings. So scientifically speaking, we would then say there's not scientific support for the fact claim that language influences crystal formation or the innate properties of water. That's the science. Language does matter. A lot. The language you use to describe yourself has lasting consequences. Uh, I have a really bad habit when I do something that I think is less than perfect. I, I have very high self-expectations I'm trying to work through. I will say things like, Mike, you are an idiot. I will say things to myself my worst enemy wouldn't say to me. I, I do this thing consistently where I lock myself out of my house or my car. I mean, consistently. I actually bought a motorcycle because it didn't have doors. <laughs> and I literally couldn't lock myself out of it until I figured out how to lock my keys in the storage cubby so I could get in the motorcycle. I mean, on the, but I couldn't drive it. So when I crashed my motorcycle at great cost to my mental capacity because I got a double brain bleed and stretched my brain stem, um, it's real fun. I don't recommend it. Then I bought a car with those electronic locks. So like every, almost every time I get home from the airport, I put my backpack in the trunk and I shut the trunk and the trunk opens back up. And I go, this stupid car. And I slam the trunk and it opens back up and I go, my keys are in the trunk. <laughs> and I take the keys out and it, the car will not lock with the keys inside of it. And it's a real good vibe. Um, but I get so white-hot angry when I realize the car wasn't wrong, and it's me and my stupid brain. And in the way my psyche forms, I'm warping the crystal when I do that. And the language we use against other people matters, especially if you're parents I think what you tell your children about the world is way less important than how you tell them. Uh, your children are shaped by what you say about them. So if they don't do their homework and you say, you're so lazy, that just became part of their identity. The closer someone is to you, or the more you think of them, the more the words they describe you stick to your identity formation. I've noticed that when I study the teachings of Christ, he was careful with the barbs. I could be wrong. I read the Bible a lot again these days. Uh, but I think I can safely make a claim that Jesus rarely or never uh, used insults or harsh language to people whose actions weren't resulting directly in the suffering or oppression of others. So Jesus would use these bars when necessary to protect people, uh, but typically not to tear individuals down. So whether or not I would be scientifically skeptical of the claim that the water in us 
is affected by language. But the 86 billion neurons in your skull sitting in that pool of water, the story they tell themselves, you call your consciousness and your identity, is radically affected by the language other people use for you and especially the language you use on yourself. So if you have a tendency to be negative, I would start listening to your thoughts regularly as a discipline and listen to the way you talk to yourself and train yourself to extend the same grace to you that you so readily extend to others. I've learned to say often, Mike, you're doing your best. Do you know what I say to myself sometimes? Sometimes I tell myself that I'm proud of me. Does that sound ridiculous? It does, a little bit. But for most of my life, I would have never dreamed to do that because I was an evangelical, and we aren't prideful. So what do we do instead? We foster this shame about our identities, about our beliefs, about our behaviors. We learn to hide parts about ourselves that we think will result in the disapproval or rejection of others. And uh, it warps the crystal. It really does. So, listen to how you speak to yourself. And for people in your life who say things that wound, four powerful words, that hurt my feelings. Do you know that if studies have shown that if you create a game environment where people can cheat and get away with it, and that it increases the chances of winning, if you read the Ten Commandments before the game goes, People are statistically less likely to cheat, including atheists. Sometimes our moral supervisor in our brain has to get woken up and saying, that hurt my feelings, creates self-reflection in the other person. It's not an accusation. It's just a report of how you feel. And people who can't get it, that still continue to throw phrases like ninja stars that leave you bleeding, those are the people you have to kind of put boundaries around and not include in your life so much, or else you can't be the healthy person the world needs. The world needs healthy, loving, gracious people. We call that the gospel. The Bible calls them salt and light. We're meant to be this preserving force in the world. We can't do that if we poison our own salt or let other people do that. Um, my name's Eric. Uh, my question for you would be, how would you personally explain the Holy Trinity? Um, what are their unique... <laughs> I know, man. I'm throwing you under the bus. I'm sorry. Um, but also, what are their unique characteristics, and how are they relevant and in interacting in today's world? <laughs> sorry. Have fun. Christian theology universally describes the Trinity as a mystery. And this is the third stop on the tour where someone has said to me, describe specifically the Holy Trinity. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, so we've, we touched on it a little earlier, but as a review, Trinitarian theology denotes God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Father is the creator. The Father is, uh, here's how the Father rolls. 
The Father will set a bush on fire, but it won't burn, and then will say existentialist poetry through it, like, I am that which I am. I will be that which I will be. Now, you read the Bible and it said, I am, which is like, I've heard a better translation of that Hebrew includes different tenses, but it's not as punchy as like, I am. Like, that's good marketing, Bible translators. I'll give you that. (laughs) So, the Father is kind of this mystery. Um, And you see that in the arc of Scripture, that God is distant and mysterious and inscrutable. And the further you get into, especially the Old Testament, like by, you, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, like God indwells a holy of holies in this one temple, in this one town, and once a year, someone can go into that space where God reaches down to the earthly realm from the celestial, a mystery. Then you have the Christ. Now you, most Christians in America, no, Jesus Christ, Jesus, first name, Christ, last name. Um, and it's not really accurate. So the, the Christ, when we say that uh, the begotten, not made son, the Christ exi- has existed as long as the Godhead or the Father, and the Christ has always been inviting creation to reconciliation, always from the beginning of time before time. But the Christ became incarnate in Jesus. Okay? Getting real Trinitarian here. Um, And so Jesus became a human representation of the Christ, and therefore what? Understandable and relatable. A God that walks around and says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of yeast put into dough. Uh, Who wouldn't rejoice over one lost coin being found? Told these stories we could relate to. Cooked breakfast. Fish, but still kind of relatable. Although uh, Jesus cooked breakfast after rising from the dead, which is a little different than me, but well, I mean, let's get honest, I don't really cook breakfast other than Pop-Tarts, but what I'm getting at is, is Jesus with God with a face that we could relate to. And then you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit uh, comes and dwells within humanity. The amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is if the Spirit dwells within you, the thing about the God, the Creator, is it seems very distant. It seems very mysterious. The thing about the Christ is it was just incarnate for the 33 years and then took a rocket ship, you know, to wherever in the ascension. And then the the mysterious distance becomes close because God's within. That means that the Spirit's within you. You can actually look within and find God. Now, that doesn't mean like you are God. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not speaking heresy, at least not right now. Um, but you can look inward, and the Spirit can move you. The Spirit can compel you. The Spirit can reveal things. Uh, scientifically, again, except Trinitarian theology is always centered around the idea that the beings of the Godhead only exist in relationship with each other. Oddly similar to physics. 
So in this room are a truly unknowable number of quantum wave functions that collapse into particles only when they interact with other particles, that everything in this room exists only in relationship to everything else in this room, a process we call quantum coherence. So I think it's interesting that this, this metaphor, this idea of a three-in-one God in relationship, accurately reflects not only our physical reality, but our consciousness. The Enlightenment told us that we're all individual rational actors, and science reveals that's a bunch of bunk. We are a social consciousness. How do I know? Take the most balanced, mature person you've ever met and lock them in a five-star luxury hotel room for three years, and don't let them talk to anybody, don't let them read a book, don't let them watch television, don't let them communicate in any way, and that mature, balanced person will come out of that room a raving lunatic because we exist and are defined in relationship to others. Our very beliefs are formed not by rational inquiry, but social identity, including skeptics. So you either form beliefs uh, by what people around you believe, or you're a nonconformist and you form beliefs by rebelling against the ideas around you. In either case, you're riffing off a social consciousness that exists in relationship with everything else. I think maybe one of the problems the church has is post-enlightenment, we moved away from the Trinity, we made it a talking point and not an integral part of our theology. And I think the mystery of the Trinity might be more relevant to the culture we live in than the kind of post-enlightenment, post-reformation faith uh, that builds megachurches. Um, that said, I literally have no idea what I'm talking about. Hi, Mike. Hi. I'm Aaron. Good uh, to see you. First, I wanted to throw a wrench in the system and thank you. Uh, about a month ago, you fielded a question at the end of the podcast from a young woman who had just experienced sexual assault, and uh, it just totally wrecked me in all the good ways. Um, so thank you for what you said. Sure. Uh, and I would say, go find it, guys. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, and I was also appreciative that you didn't end it with do 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 do, even though we all love the. No, jingle. I definitely don't. Afterward, like, Greg, that's the end of the question. <laughs> um, so, uh, so my question is about a dissociation. Ooh. Okay. Um, I've heard you mention it in relation to your own experiences. And by the way, I'm reading from notes because I will also talk and talk and talk until I'm blue in the face. <laughs> um, and I've also experienced it in my own life to varying degrees. You know partially because of trauma, but then also in like, you know, mundane, harmless ways like, oh, I'm waking up at my desk at work with coffee in my hand. How did I get here, right? Um, so the term itself implies like sort of this disconnect. And I was just wondering if, if that actually relates to something in the brain, like if there's actually a disconnect that happens when we dissociate. Um, and obviously like our brains don't like fly away from our body, right? But <laughs> I wondered neurologically if there's anything. And then as a side question, um, is dissociation like inherently beneficial or detrimental or, or is it like both but at different times? Hush. Sorry. <laughs> I've never taken my glasses off before answering a question. That's the level of bewilderment I feel. 
I actually don't think this podcast has any value if I don't admit when I don't know things. If it's just a massive propaganda to convince people I'm intelligent, then it's just another Western ego validation. <laughs> so I think a very important value of the show, maybe the most valuable questions are the ones I go, that's an amazing question, and I have literally no clue. I'm almost going there, but not quite. I, I have not studied specifically brain imaging studies involving dissociation. And as I think about it, that's probably because it's rel a relatively difficult brain state to initiate on purpose. I could just imagine trying to fund that study and like, wh like what ethical lines you would have to cross to get someone in an fMRI scanner or any other kind of brain imaging and then get them to dissociate through what causes dissociation. Trauma. Trauma, serious trauma. Uh, so I understand the emotional underpinning of a dissociation. Your brain is trying to protect you. The feelings you have are so powerful they would interfere with your ability to function, and so the brain distances your consciousness from your emotional systems. You become an observer of your own actions. The day I heard Jesus talk to me, that's a sentence I just said that's real, as I walked up to the table of the Eucharist, I felt normal, even relaxed. And it was only later one of my friends told me that tears were pouring down my face, right? Because I was in a state of division in my own brain. How's that possible? You don't have a brain. Now, I don't mean you don't have a brain at all. I mean, you don't have just one brain. Your brain is composed of dozens or hundreds, depending on how you divide them, of structures with competing goals and priorities for your life. For example, your orbitofrontal cortex may realize that on tour, you've consistently been eating too many calories, and your bottom jacket button will no longer button. But when you're at Joe's in Kansas City, yeah, then your uh, ventral stratum and your basal ganglia go, you know what's really good? Pig on Texas toast. So at the same time, I want to button my bottom button and I want to eat pig on Texas toast. Those are mutually... Uh, exclusive goals, but I want them both. It's because different parts of my brain want different things. Now, the part of your brain that is generally in charge is the prefrontal cortex. It's the brain's president. And just like the president of the United States, you know, whatever you think about any given president, the fact is they don't actually know that much about what's happening in the government. If you ask them some really specific question about policy in the Department of Transportation, they'll have no idea what you're talking about. Because every day they get briefings of only the most important things happening, and that's the same thing that happens to your consciousness. And in situations of threat, your limbic system is faster than your prefrontal cortex, is better at, for example, dodging a predator, just imagine for a second, a bear comes barreling into the room. Your prefrontal cortex would go, about how fast is it moving? Does it seem angry? 
can I appeal? It would go through this whole rational analysis, and your limbic system would what? You would run, right? You would just run or punch the bear if you're, you know, going to be selected against via natural selection. <laughs> but good for us that run. So we need some of those who will die for the good of the species every now and then. Um, but in that moment, your, your limbic system just takes over, uh, and later your consciousness goes, I did that. That was me. When really what happened is the president got grabbed by his suit jacket and the Secret Service shoved him out of the way and under a desk, right? So dissociation is what happens when the limbic system takes over, but the conscious brain still has some awareness, and that's the uncanny quality. I still know what's going on, but I'm not really running the show. Um, it's a survival thing. It's good. The bad thing is our response later. That trauma gets stored in our memories. It gets a high association with the amygdala. And if you get any stimulus that resembles in your brain's narrative the original trauma, you get triggered. People are like, trigger warnings are dumb. People who don't like trigger warnings have never had real trauma or have just been lucky in how they've been able to cope with it. But it's true, neurologically speaking, that some things later can take you back to that state of panic and pain. And that's why it's important, if you've experienced some form of dissociation or even any form of trauma, to process through it via grief so that it doesn't continue to take up real estate in your brain and show up unexpectedly at dinner. And if you're dissociating frequently, like that's a klaxon in your psyche, right? See a professional immediately because you could do something that harms yourself. Uh, my name's Rob. Thank you so much for the podcast. It means so much to me. So question on the multiverse. I'm, I'm a pastor who wishes secretly he was a director of science fiction movies. So um, I'm wondering if any of the theories on the multiverse would actually allow for any kind of direct interaction between the universes. So like in Interstellar, it posits this theory that maybe anomalous experiences that are seen as supernatural or paranormal are actually different universes in the multiverse actually interacting with each other. So is there anything to that? Does, for example, does light actually travel between the different universes in the multiverse or gravity? Um, and is there any theories that would allow for that kind of direct interaction between the various universes? At first, I thought no. Um, and then I realized, yes. Okay, first of all, um, should probably talk about what multiverses are. There are multiple multiverse theories that attempt to resolve a particular problem in physics in quantum physics, the standard model, which is why is it so hard to mathematically predict what's going to happen at a quantum level, you have to use this unfathomable number of equations and run them over and over. So Einstein got so mad about quantum physics, he said, God does not roll dice, because the only way the world makes sense in the standard model of physics lens, if there's literally kind of a random action that underlies physical reality, which makes determinists very upset because physics is supposed to follow rules. 
So multiverse cosmology is an attempt to say, well, there's a reason it's so hard to predict, because every quantum thing that happens does. It's called the many worlds hypothesis of quantum dynamics. In that model, no, multiverses never interact with each other. Other multiverse theories are designed to resolve the issues of where the standard model of physics intersects with Einstein's theory of relativity, i.e. the singularity from which the universe began and the period of rapid inflation immediately following that event, which has all kinds of problems in physics as we know it. So, in some of those models, universes are um, bubbles, yeah? Yeah, so in some of the bubble universes, even if they're spatially infinite, some models say that light can't, but gravity can pass between universes. Because, for example, in string theory, gravitons are the only uh, open-ended string in the theory. We're getting way in the weeds, I'm sorry. <laughs> what this means is some scientists, practitioners of string theory, think that dark matter is the gravity coming from other bubble universes. And in that specific model, gravity is being exchanged between universes. It doesn't pass information, though. You can't learn anything about the other universe other than the total amount of mass in it. Uh, and even then, you can only estimate because you don't precisely know the distance to that universe, and gravity does follow the inverse square law, at least in this universe. Of course, if other universes have a different number of spatial dimensions, the inverse square law will not apply in their coordinates and only in ours, and they might be inverse cube or inverse whatever, depending on the total number of spatial dimensions. Is everybody with me? <laughs> uh, long story short, sometimes. My name is, um, let's say, Alan. Hi, Alan. Hi. Uh, so I've got a question about spiral dynamics. That's okay. Uh, but I'm, I'm hopefully going to create a, a possibility that it will be relatable. Okay. So Raise uh, your hand if you've never heard of spiral dynamics. Okay, great. Never heard. Okay. That'll help. Um, so we're here on a Wednesday night. Yes. Uh, I am supposed to be at my home congregation where I'm a youth pastor. Okay. Do we, do we need to do like a voice warp on your voice? No. Okay. Because my name is Alan. At my home church. It should be fine. <laughs> but if, uh, if a few of my elders knew I was here, instead of teaching my teenagers, I may not have a job to come back to. Wow. Because my congregation is exceptionally blue. Yeah. Um, which is the idea that, uh, that there are rules and there are laws, and that is very easily um, attributed to spiritual ideas. Yep, right. Um, I attend a Church of Christ, if you know anything about that. I do. Uh, that so corner. Is the thunder. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Um, I, on the other hand, chose to take a vacation day, drive two and a half hours to be here, because I am falling far out of a blue stage and far into an orange stage of wanting to ask questions and figuring out what life is like. Yes, right. I also have a toddler and a baby on a way. Uh-huh. 
when I'm at a, uh, a job that I absolutely love, but I don't know if I can fit in. Yeah. So the question comes to this. When you start to ask big questions and you don't know where they're going and you don't know when you answer them where they'll take you, how do you find the courage to continue to move forward when you know it might have dramatic consequences? Thank you, Alan. Okay, spiral dynamics is a theory of how human consciousness responds to the environment, how human consciousness modifies the environment through culture, and then how the human brain responds to the modifications itself made. If you want to know more about it, listen to the Liturgist podcast episode on spiral dynamics. You'll know what it means and probably be more confused than you are now. What his question said with the colors is, I go to a very traditional church with a conservative theology, and lately I've been questioning what I understand to be true, and maybe the lens with which I'm viewing the world is starting to change, and I don't know where I'll end up, and this is especially complicated because my paycheck is attached to the way I used to believe. I get at least 100 emails like that a week. This is not an obscure thing. This is something I'm trying to help my more conservative Christian friends realize their pastors aren't with them anymore. Their praise and worship leaders aren't with them anymore. Their seminary grads, their theologians, the ship is sailing. They're not on it. Uh, and yet, because they pay so many people so much money, a lot of people just privately suffer. First of all, great insight to start out knowing where you don't know where you're going. I have terrible news. If this continues, you will not fit in where you are. How do I know? There are a thousand people in a Baptist church who I love dearly in the city of Tallahassee, Florida, who literally could not stand to be in a room with me because I'm the one who rebelled against the tribe. Now, I wasn't paid by that church. I was just a deacon and a Sunday school teacher. But my entire social life was planted in that soil. I got married in that church. Both my daughters were born while we went to that church. My oldest daughter was baptized there. I lost three grandparents while attending that church. So moving on hurt, but I didn't worry my family would starve. Right now, probably makes sense to be careful who you tell what. That doesn't mean don't tell anyone. Now, you just told some close friends here, and they're all going to keep it a secret. Um, as well as, by the way, everyone listening, however many hundred thousand is this week, nobody mentioned what's going on with Alan. Um, especially if you live two and a half hours from Kansas City. Uh, but it's important that you, you have people in your life that you can be honest with through this whole process that won't judge you, won't correct you, won't coerce you, won't say, if you can't get back to X, I'm out. 
You need truly safe people because doubt is a corrosive, dangerous thing when mixed with fear or shame. Right, Tim? Tim, help me realize that it's not just fear, it's also shame. And if you do it alone, that will be an inevitable component. Here's the other thing. This is good. The way you understood God that served you for so long isn't working anymore because you're growing. We have this assumption in the church that people change their beliefs because of a sin problem or some ridiculous notion like that. But I have found it is almost universally in a search for truth, in a thirst for justice, in a hunger to know God, and all three of those often in response to some form of trauma. So if the reason you're starting to evaluate is because of a woundedness, uh, as you search for God and as you rationally analyze God, God will start to feel more and more and more distant. And that's not actually distance from God. That's you becoming distant from yourself because of the way you've been hurt. And so part of your Discipline and practice of being honest with other people must include talking about that thing that made the wound or those things that reopened the old wound that now are causing you to search. By the way, whenever a new image of God is presented in the Bible, what happened? Something horrible to the nation of Israel. We learn new things about God when we've been hurt so badly that the old thing doesn't work anymore. So I would say get excited because wherever you go next, if it's in search for truth, if it's in search of love, God will be there, even if the word you end up using to describe yourself is atheist. Wherever you go, if you're searching for truth and love and beauty and hope, God will be there. Now, the paycheck thing. <laughs> Six months from now, this is still going on. Or you go to places that you know just are unspeakable in that community context. The only thing that will protect you and your family is uprooting yourself from that financial soil and finding a new income stream. I'm not kidding when I say if you have a car that's newer than 10 years, Uber or Lyft can pay bills short term while you look for something else. I speak from experience. I left an ad job to be a podcaster. It's not super lucrative. Um, but I sleep good. But ultimately, you may have to find a job in a different church, or you might need to work not for a church at all. And we do a really terrible thing to pastors. We train them in one specific occupation so that they're always leashed to the approval of a congregation. Um, now, if you, have, if you love teaching students, maybe be a substitute teacher for a while, you know, uh, maybe become a teacher teacher. Gosh, we could use good teachers in our society. If you have a heart for hurting people, maybe some of your college credits would apply to a new degree in counseling or therapy. Just remember, you're never as stuck as you think you are. There's much more freedom than we realize because we become paralyzed in our context, but the paralysis mainly comes from a fear of rejection. Social animals. We die alone before agriculture, right? Can't survive on our own. We fear rejection. Uh, there's nothing to fear. I know a few hundred thousand people 
who think you're great exactly like you are. Thank you, Alan. Um, notice that the room is about half and half men and women, but to every one woman that has asked a question, there have been two men that have participated, which is statistically very common for professional and educational worlds, as well as even more common in religious worlds. Can you um, speak to if you notice that happening frequently, sorry, frequently in all of your podcast episodes, as well as the psychological and or scientific causes for how that happens podcast listeners you can't see me dancing because i love that question so much wow fire okay hi my name is science mike i am a raging male feminist um it is so consistent especially ask science mike it's more with than when we do liturgist things ask science mike crowd uh, I've had audiences that are 60% women and no questions from women the entire time we record. And I wrestle with that. What do I do? What do I do? I'm glad they're here. Why do I ask questions? And if I answer the questions as a male, am I just reinforcing patriarchy by putting women in the position of just asking questions? <laughs> so I had an idea at the liturgist gathering in Chicago. We did a session in the morning where I told the story of Paul and how he was kind of the original church heretic bad boy, like the first Rob Bell was Paul. Uh, the mother church in Jerusalem, like Paul would go and like do his thing, and they would hear about it, and they would send missionaries to correct Paul's teaching, and then Paul would get really mad and write a letter. We called him the epistles. <laughs> and then Paul said this thing one time, that has been echoing through the centuries. I permit not a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now, there's several hermeneutics. You can apply that passage. Some would make it a very local context wherein there were priestesses in the church who came from a very female domineering culture, and his text was for that local congregation saying, give the men some space. I mean, they, they just got done being uh, temple male prostitutes. Give them some space in Jesus, right? Um, but, but then other people would say, no, that was probably an equally valid hermeneutic given Paul's cultural context was, no, he was pretty much a chauvinist. Um, so in the Chicago, I looked around the room and uh, more girls and guys way more comments and questions from men. So I said, here's what we're going to do after I told my Paul story. For the next hour, I, Science Mike, permit not a man to teach or have authority over a woman. Michael Gunger and I sat down and were mute for an hour, and all the men in the room had to sit silently while the women talked and had questions and shared. And it was amazing. Women have so much to say. They have such wisdom. They're, more of them are Christians than men, by the way. The rise of secularism is a uniquely male phenomenon. And yet we've got to let the men preach so they can have an existential crisis and leave the church. <laughs> and the most amazing thing was, after an hour, one hour, 60 minutes of sitting quietly, I just looked at the men's faces, and they all had so much they wanted to say that they learned. That experience was pouring out, and I knew because I was one of them, 
And so when I stepped back up and we were opening the room to men again, I said, you have an hour's worth of thoughts you'd love to share. Women have 200,000 years of thoughts they'd like to teach us. So as we continue in this day, can we remember guys to intentionally create the space for women to speak more? Now, why does this happen? Why is it that women ask those questions? Part of it is actually biological and neurological. Um, men interrupt women a lot. Women interrupt women a lot. Uh, there's a couple things biologically we look for in people not to interrupt. Height, shoulder width, depth of voice. Why? You take civilization away, if you interrupt the taller, broad-shouldered, deep-voiced male, he will at least beat you up and maybe kill you. If you take civilization out of the room, we are a particularly brutal species of primate. That's gotten reinforced in a cultural context we call patriarchy, wherein women are affirmed and valued when they are compliant and socially shunned or pressured when they are assertive. Studies have shown over and over and over and over, if men and women engage in the same behaviors, women are judged harshly when they do the same things that men do. I don't want to get political. <laughs> it would be very difficult to make a credible argument that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have been measured by the same standards of behavior and temperament during the election and in the debates. And I have to talk about Hillary. She's the first female nominee in the history of our nation, right? We've been around a while. We finally are like, you know what? I guess a girl. I mean, I really wanted Kate, uh, I really wanted Sanders, but I guess a girl. I mean, she won. Ah. Like, it's like we're even dragging our feet. It's like, I remember, you know, my, 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 my oldest daughter stayed up to see Hillary accept the nomination. And uh, she said, Dad, could I be president? And then my youngest daughter said, <clears throat> is Bill Clinton related to her? <laughs> oh, man, that was good. So there are some small biological reasons that women defer, but it is far more cultural. And it's why men need to be feminists. We're the thing in the way. The glass ceiling is made of our elbows. Um, Emma Watson, who is flawless, uh, started a campaign called he for she, he for she, hashtag he for she. And it's the idea that um, men need to make the space for women, that women have been trying. I don't know if you've ever studied women's suffrage. <laughs> Not that long after the union was created, like affluent, educated women of power and privilege fought for universal suffrage. It took until 1920 just to get the right to vote. 
Jesus was a marginalized person of color who lived under an oppressive empire. The gospel involves the liberation of the oppressed. The scripture is not ambiguous. And in my hermeneutic today, I don't identify with the Jewish people. I identify with the Romans. If I want to know how Jesus would relate to me, I look for encounters when Jesus or Paul or whoever talked to a Roman centurion. Look it up, by the way, guys. Actually, white people, look it up. Like the, 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 the energy of the conversation between Jesus and a Roman was undeniably different and hesitant and reticent compared to when he discussed things with his peers. And I think for... Roman Christians such as myself, we have an obligation to stand alongside those who are oppressed so they may be liberated to take up your cross, if you will. What is to, what is to, to take up your cross? To sacrifice for the freedom and healing of others. Um, so, on the pre-recorded shows, you may notice there's a better ratio because girls' questions go straight to the front of the line. And live environments, it's harder to engineer until someone like you asks a question like that and we realize that in this room, patriarchy's not welcome. My name is Abby, and um, I kind of have a twofold question here. So I'm a modern history major, spent my entire um, They don't call me years. History Mike, just as a warning. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so spent most of my college years um, studying the Holocaust and modern European history and um, decided to go over to Poland and, and kind of do some work over there and visit Auschwitz, which totally wrecked my theology. And I'm so very thankful for podcasts like yours that have helped sort of piece it back together. Um, so my question is, is one, how do we um, avoid ever being that numb as a culture again? And neurologically, how um, does somebody rise to power in such a modern, a modern culture at the time um, who possesses such evil and the rest of us kind of sit aside and let it happen? Sorry, I know that's a lot, but... It's a good question. Man, will it get emails when I answer it. <laughs> I went to the Holy Land with a group called the Telos Group. And Telos is weird for Holy Land groups um, because most places that will take you to Israel are very, like, uh, pro-Israel, like even Israel-funded. Some groups, a little ragtag quality to them, are pro-Palestinian. Um, and then Telos is pro-Palestine, pro-Israel, pro-peace. They call it the pro-pro-pro model. And they're real jerks <laughs> because they take you to the Holy Land and they introduce you to all these compelling stories that directly contradict each other and they don't tell you who you should be for. <laughs> so you meet with people who survive different di points of uprising or shaking off, depending on who you ask, in that country's history. 
And you also meet people who came in as refugees from World War II to settle the land and people who were alive then and were displaced. And all that little intro to go to one point. Jews who lived in Germany were shocked at what happened. Because Jews who lived in Germany and Poland and France fought along other soldiers for their countries in World War I. They were patriots who loved the nation of their birth. And Hitler rises to power, and Germany's not the only country that lost its mind. Other countries willingly selected, assembled, and shipped off their Jewish populations to the Nazis. In your brain, the amygdala wins. Fear and anger trump your reasoning, trump your compassion. I didn't mean to say Trump. <laughs> I honestly didn't. A hundred percent, not a loaded statement. I used to say that before this election, and that guy ruined the word. Okay. Fear and anger defeat your other emotions, defeat your rational capacities. And, I mean, let's be honest, there's not like a lot of Trump fans in the Science Mike audience, but there are some, and uh, I'm always fascinated by people who are like Trump supporters and listen to my podcast. That's amazing. <laughs> so... <laughs> They are actually interesting, thoughtful people who support Donald Trump, so hence the fascination. So if someone can provoke a social anxiety and channel it through fear or anger, you'd be shocked how fast social systems fall by the wayside. If you study the rise of Hitler, it's really terrifying. His party never won a majority of the election. He elected an extremely vocal minority who caused so much trouble that to appease them, Hitler was appointed to a ceremonial role in the government with no power, which they leveraged into a parliamentary majority, which they coerced other parties into going along with. And the next thing you know, a modern democracy, Germany, fell to fascism. How? You rile up fear and anger, and guess what? Hitler pointed out real social ills. The lot of the German worker really was bad. But instead of pointing to the legitimate economic forces and presenting possible solutions, he said, it's those Jews and it's those gypsies. And if we assemble and fight for the right of the German worker and get rid of the evil Jew and gypsy, we'll make Germany great again, right? That's basically a, a translation of the propaganda. Now, I'm not comparing any contemporary political figure uh, to Hitler Non-politically, frankly, I don't actually think 
Trump's as, like as smart as Hitler or engineering something. Um, but what Trump scares me is not actually Trump. I, I think he's, he's going to be a lot less relevant in like seven days. But that thing he's revealed to me, that even America with the most powerful military in human history is not immune to a riling of the amygdala and an alienation of the other. It's no longer gypsies and Jews. I mean, sometimes it's Jews today. Anti-Semitism's not gone. Uh, but it is Mexicans and Muslims. How quickly could America's social systems be circumvented by very legitimate beefs. A lot of the political base of this country on both sides of the aisle have been manipulated into voting for the interests of people who aren't like them. So the GOP is reaping a whirlwind. It's talked about economic empowerment through small government for decades, and what it's mainly done is help out financial markets and large corporations, and its base is angry. Where are all our jobs? You've been saying for 20 years we would have jobs, and my way of life is literally dying. My children have no education opportunities. They're starving. It's the the great social… I I mean, I'm starting to study history too. Now, I've been studying history for like 12 months, so I'm real new but I also am a little obsessive when I study things. And it's amazing how frequently in human society those with the most power and resources convince those beneath them to fight each other. It's a really consistent feature of human societies. And I don't even think it's like an Illuminati conspiracy. Uh, I think it's a manifestation of the power law and metapolitics. Um, Occasionally, it's, it's intentional, but mostly it's systemic. The problem is um, rational voices lose thanks to human cognitive bias. If someone shouts loudly and with confidence something and provides no evidence, and someone else offers you a reasoned, considered position with evidence, and then because they are being honest also tells you the limitations of their perspective, People believe the shouting confident person, overwhelmingly. Climate science, we believe these things for these reasons, here's the holes in the model. There's holes in the model, it's a Chinese conspiracy. <laughs> That's, it's just human psychology. Um, how do you circumvent that? How do you prevent that? First question tonight, what happens when over time Through Jesus, you believe in a God of love. Remember what I said about it biases against your amygdala and how you respond to stimulus? If you have a consistent meditative practice, you're less likely to get riled up over stuff like that. If you believe that God is loving, you're less likely to get riled up. If you take another approach, um, it's pretty hard to rile up atheists. They're skeptics. They have a feeling and they go, why did I just have that feeling? I'm going to analyze the feeling and see if it has a grounding in reality. That's another approach that minimizes it. So on the one hand, you have like what I would call a contemplative posture. You can have a skeptical posture 
If you're me, you have a skeptical, contemplative posture. Um, But in all those cases, you're less likely to get swept up in that stuff. But not impossible. If you follow me on Twitter, sometimes I lose myself in social identity. I mean, quote Hamilton, I'll go nuts. You know what I mean? I'm in. And uh, it's not just that Hamilton is the greatest art in generations. It is. Um, But it's also that there's a social identity piece at play. This is also true sometimes when I talk politics. I I tweet something, I go, I really have no empirical basis for that claim. I've just lately started thinking of myself as liberal, like like nine months ago, right? (laughs) Like it's a real new thing. So it's new to my identity, so I get overexcited. But it's that awareness. It's that reflection of self. The problem is it doesn't come as naturally. So it's always a smaller group. And the thing that concerns me, and I think concerns you too, is uh, history shows. Oh, gosh, there's one historian. What's his name? It's a really captivating paper. He basically shows out how often humans go into a self-annihilistic fervor. And he says we're basically like 22 years overdue. And it's only after. It's when, it's when two generations have passed since the last one. No one has a direct memory of the trauma of the last let's all kill each other that we go, you know what we should do? <laughs> we should show them we're right with guns. And... Um, I don't know, can the species escape that pattern? For the sake of my kids, I hope so. Hi, I'm Alicia. And my question is uh, back regarding, you talked about um, the uh, word becoming flesh. And I was wondering if you could expand upon that outside of the brain um, in any way that you would like to. But if you feel that it's appropriate and would fit in the framework of eschatology, did I say that right? I would eschatology. Like to, eschatology. Yes. Hey, I'm a champion at mispronouncing words. Eagletarian. Anybody? Science my crowd. Did it? None tonight. Sometimes people make T-shirts with an eagle on it. Says Eagletarian. Uh, <laughs> no one says Eagletarian until Tallahassee, Florida. It doesn't happen. Uh, okay, Word Becomes Flesh. There's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Anybody heard of that one? Oh, go get that book. After you get Finding on the Waves. Uh, <laughs> go get that book. Um, our body stores trauma, not just our brain. Uh, the crystallization idea, as, as, as all of our physical processes happen, our emotional state deeply impacts them. You have two brains. Uh, you've got more neurons in your GI tract than some animals have in their main brain. Uh, those, those neurons are in contact with the flora and fauna of microbes that live in your gut. Um, your body's various systems uh, are deeply impacted by your emotional makeup, which is deeply impacted by language because we're a storytelling animal. So the story we tell ourselves and the story others tell us about us impacts not just our neurological makeup, but our whole bodies. Through the lens of eschatology, what's my eschatology other than entropic heat death (laughs) or AI taking over the world to make handwritten letters? Another inside joke for people listening to the podcast a lot. 
What's that? In the essence of forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, eschatology means the end of all things, or I guess it also means eternity. Word made flesh, what eternal significance does it have? I have no idea. I have no idea. You have met few Christians who actually do believe in a resurrection of Christ. I'm not that kind of Christian. Um, who thinks so little about the afterlife or the end. The more I think about Jesus, the less I think about what happens when we die and the more I think about what happens when we live. Yeah, the word you make, the word that becomes flesh is incredibly important uh, because you're not an individual consciousness. So the words that you describe yourself and others and the actions you take as a result get stored in the neurons of people that know you. The better someone knows you, the more accurate their neurological simulation of your neurons are. What does that mean? Have you ever had a dear one die and you know exactly what they would say about a situation? Have you ever had a dear one die and you feel like sometimes you talk to them and they talk back? Because the neurological echo of their identity that lives in you if they were originally a photograph, Douglas Hofstetter says, maybe you have a mosaic. But a photograph and a mosaic are still a representation of the same thing at different resolutions. I've heard it said that we truly die the last time someone says our name. The words that I try to make flash, I want to make a lasting impact. The words that I make flesh, I want future generations to be happy that I did. The words that I make flesh, I want my kids to tell their kids about. And I want my daughters to say, this is ridiculous. I want them to tell their kids, maybe even their kids' kids. He loved God. And we can tell that he loved others. I can imagine no more fitting, lasting, maybe even eternal legacy than that I understood in my actions the two greatest commandments. My name's Adam, and... uh I have a question for you. I'm not sure what it is exactly. I've been wrestling kind of the whole time, and everything you say actually makes me have a question. Um, <laughs> That's how I roll. So, like, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but it's a solid question, so hang with me. Let's do it. Like, I'm a former pastor. Mm-hmm. I was raised in church, and, like, my entire identity was wrapped up in, like, being a pastor. There was never any other question about that's what I was going to be. Um, <clears throat> I've also experienced a lot of trauma, and I, I, I know a lot of people have, you know, so I'm not alone in that, right? But it, it did happen, and a lot of it. <clears throat> when I was doing what I found my identity in, it, that stuff didn't bother me as much, right? Mm. But now that I don't have that identity anymore, <clears throat> I 
some stuff's just real hard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I get what you're saying about like this idea of a loving God, and, and I never really understood the depth in which that neurological stuff matters to faith. And I also I was born with cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess my question is like, are there people, especially people maybe who um, have like brain injury? You know, when 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 I I understood my faith completely, and I I was doing all the things I was supposed to be doing, and not mm-hmm. doing all the things that I wasn't supposed to be doing, or whatever. This wasn't an issue, but but now it is. I mean, like, are there people who just can't? They just can't because of a brain injury or because they're the way they're neurologically wired. Are there people that just can't find like peace with God? You know. Um, mm. That's my question. Have you had you. Uh, an additional brain trauma? Um, no, that's that's the big one. I okay. mean, f- f- physical yeah. brain brain trauma, pro- probably not. You know. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Why does it hurt so much when we lose God? I mean, if, if you end up not believing in God. Why does it hurt so much to lose a God that doesn't exist? Why if you don't lose God, but you lose what you once believed about God and find yourself displaced from community, why does that leave such lasting hurt? whole brain scanner thing? Ideas about God are uniquely associated with personal identity. Identity formation is the foundation of ego. Formation is the foundation of what? Self-worth. How long were you a believer of that kind? Oh, my, my entire life. I mean, you know, we were super conservative at church three times a week. I, I was the kid in youth group that everybody knew was going to grow up and, and be a pastor. It's so like more than two months. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so think about how many neurons created networks in your brain related to seeing the world through that understanding of God. What, how much energy, how many calories, how many oxygen molecules went into forming those structures, and then your belief changes and you don't use those neurons anymore. So here I was, an atheist, in a room full of pastors. And I stood up and told a pastor that he was wrong about atheism and skepticism, and I knew that because I was a Southern Baptist atheist. And I said, how can anyone who understands anything at all about how the universe works believe in God? And then he challenged me to think about God differently. He said, what if you just took the questions you can't answer and you put that in a bucket in your brain and you call that bucket God? And when he said that, a very strange thing happened to me. For like a half second, I felt total transcendence and the presence of God again. Do you know what happened? By triggering the word God in conjunction with a worldview, a bunch of neurons in a network that hadn't lit up for a while went, whoa, yeah, that's what it's like. 
and the stored latent neurological energy came back. One thing, you can use the word God with a different understanding, and your brain can start to reassociate with that old network. And when you do that, you might find feelings of faith come back faster than usual. Unless, said the Lorax, <laughs> unless you have trauma that's causing situational depression. How do you know? Depression is not feeling sad. Feeling sad is feeling sad. Depression is feeling useless. Depression is feeling nothing. Depression is pizza doesn't taste good anymore. Depression is everyone feels distant. I don't feel like I love my family anymore. If that goes on long enough, depression feels like it would make a lot more sense to die than keep on living. I had some unresolved trauma from when I was bullied as a kid. My faith helped me through it, but a girl broke up with me, the first girl I ever went out with. It brought up old feelings of rejections. And my parents weren't home, and I snuck into their closet. I pulled out my dad's shotgun. I put it in my mouth. It was cold and it tasted like smoke and a nickel. I couldn't reach the trigger with my hand, so I put my toe in it. And I pulled the trigger. I remember that clunk. I don't do this work because it's a first world problem. The pain people have of losing that community and that belief, it breaks us. And it can take us to some very dark places. So the first thing I would say is if you feel like you're bleeding out, tell the people that love you. Because the world needs you. And if you can start to deal with that pain, just deal with the pain. God will wait. God will wait, and God is there in that pain because this is a God that hangs on a cross. This is a God who gets suffering and hurt. And I don't know where you are, and I don't mean to project my experience on you, but whether it's happening to you or not, I imagine people in internet land hear your story, and they are in a dark place. So the world needs you and the world needs them. Get with people who will just love you and invest your time in them. Get with people who can hear over and over and over your trauma. And birds of a feather help. I was so, and I don't want to compare my situation with yours, but after my brain injury, I felt lost because I would... Uh, I would not have a word I wanted to say. And do you know that had never happened to me in like 30-something years? I've My whole life, words have come to me, you might notice, like a fire hose. And suddenly, I couldn't find words anymore. Suddenly, I couldn't handle crowds. I'd have panic attacks. Suddenly, I didn't feel like me. I felt like a stranger. And all my friends were so sympathetic 
But the only person who got it was my dad, who just had a major stroke. And when I realized that dad could understand, I started talking to other brain injury survivors. Sometimes our suffering is so unique, it takes people who suffered in the same way to walk a mile with us. So start with a hurt. You probably can't go back where you were, but you can go forward. How do you make peace with God? You understand who God is. And the most biblical thing in the world that I can tell you is that God is love. And every time someone loves you, and every time you love someone else, you cannot get any closer to God than that. Love, love itself. Delight in being loved and in loving others. And I don't know any better way to know God. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, the show's supposed to end with announcements and stuff. I don't think we'll do that this week. I think, I think if we played the theme song at the end of the show, it would mess it up, right? So, my friends, I'm so glad you all came. But wow, Kansas City. <laughs> Can I tell you the most amazing thing about this tour? I feel less weird. I feel less alone. Uh, you thought you came to see me, but I put these on so I get to see you. Thank you for being Jesus to me.